good evening, everybody. I'm Jim Hayes. <laughs> so tonight I uh, had something that was on my heart to, to talk about, uh, giving generously, living contently, and investing wisely. So I was out talking to Jake before I came in, and he's like, hey, you know, you can be a little spontaneous. Maybe, maybe get off the script. So I thought I'd mention this, which wasn't in my notes. But he was praying uh, for me tonight, and the verse that he mentioned just so happened to be the verse that, uh, the, kind of the central verse in tonight's sermon. So it's uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. So either Jake is really good, or the Holy Spirit kind of mentioned that to him, that that verse, that he, he didn't know what I was going to be preaching on tonight. So I just thought that was awesome, so I thought I'd share that with everybody. But before we begin, let's uh, bow our hearts and, and pray. Lord, I just thank you for tonight and the opportunity to get together with my brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you for being such a generous and loving God. As your children, you continue to work out sanctification until its completion. While we're on earth, Lord, I just pray that we strive for to be godly and for contentment as the Apostle Paul talks to Timothy that generous generosity is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And so, Lord, it all belongs to you, and I just pray that we're good stewards. I pray that we have open hearts and open minds tonight, and I pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so do you consider yourself successful? Are you content? If you're not content, how do you become content? Do you have a goal in mind, how much money maybe you need to make before you can live the good life and retire? I'm sure you're real familiar with the, what the world tells us about success and uh, you know, how much money you need to make. And, um, and basically, we're bombarded with advertisements and marketing of what the earth tells us is success. You know, you see the billboards. You're watching televisions, it's constantly in your face. Even on your cell phone, you're trying to watch, you get advertisements pop up. So it's constantly there. Well, tonight, we're going to try to take a more spiritual view of what God uh, has to say about living contently and what he has to say about money. So we're going to focus mostly on 1 Timothy chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So when you see a title like the one above, it certainly pops the question, okay, who is this guy to sit there and lecture me on, on giving and money and stuff? You know, usually someone who's going to talk about money is, is going to need to, uh, has, probably has a lot of great wealth. Well, that's, that's not me. Um, so I'm not here to lecture on money. I'm not here to talk about earthly investments necessarily. I'm no Dave Ramsey. I'm not even rich. As a matter of fact, some of the worst financial advice you can get is from an airline pilot. There's a joke that says, uh, how does an airline pilot make a million dollars in investments? He starts off with five million. So anyway, so don't listen to me. I also wanted to put out a, a little bit of a disclaimer here tonight. So Rick did not put me up to, to doing a, a sermon on giving. It was Jake. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, sometimes, you know, I... I some of the things that I, I've preached upon, like uh, last month and then this month, are some, sometimes questions that I have or challenges in my own life, and maybe these are challenges in yours. So some of the objectives tonight 
Understanding what the Bible has to say about wealth and riches, defining contentment, successful money management, slash heavenly investments. Speaking on wealth, we live in the wealthiest country on earth. I just wanted to show you some stats before we really dig in. So how many millionaires are there in the U.S.? Uh, according to the Global Wealth Report, says that there are a total of 20.27 millionaires, million millionaires in the United States. They uh, just in from 2019 to 2020, we added 2.25 million millionaires were added to the list. How many people are worth 10 million dollars in the United States? So decamillionaires, there are 1.456, so 1 million 456 thousand people with a net worth of 10 million or more. What about billionaires? There are 788 billionaires in the United States alone, okay? Their net worth is $3.4 trillion. In contrast, just 10 years ago, there were only 404 billionaires. So we've almost doubled that. So which state has the uh, per capita has the most millionaires? Any guesses? Next slide. Texas. Actually, it's not. That's a joke. It's actually New Jersey. So who would have thought? Um, so New Jersey being such close proximity to the Big Apple uh, has a lot of uh, concentration of wealth. It's not surprising that the, uh, the cost of living in the state is 13.4% higher than the U.S. average. So um, the other qu question I had for you is, is where does, uh, where, where does the U.S. rank in the number of millionaires? Well, you probably guessed it where I was leading to. So the U.S. is number one in the world. China has now become number two in the number of millionaires in the world, followed by Japan. Uh, fourth is Germany. Hey, say hello, Lily. We have a German exchange student. And not quite uh, fifth place is uh, France, so I got a Belgium student too. So uh, England's number six on the list. So... We pretty much have established that the United States is the wealthiest place on earth. But sometimes I don't think we quite appreciate the, the blessings that God has given us and the wealth that the, we uh, enjoy here. Several years uh, ago, uh, we moved up here in 2012, but before that, uh, we were stationed in New Orleans. And our church that we went to was a First Baptist church, and they had a youth event that night. And this was kind of to teach kids about you know, the different cultures around the world, but also just how good we have it as, as Americans. So they had, you know, basically the high schoolers and the middle schoolers, and they showed up at the, the church, and they had a, a big room set aside. And basically, as the students uh, filed in, they would draw, uh, would draw a, uh, a ticket, and it, the ticket would tell them which table to go to. So there were five tables set up, and each table basically was a continent. So you had... Asia, you had Africa, you had uh, Europe, you had South America and North America. I know there's more continents out there, but these are just generally. And so the adults had set everything up. So they were each host or host, you know, would have a table and they would dress, kind of be dressed for, uh, for that culture. They had local cuisines, they had decorated for that culture. And uh, also basically based off the population of those continents, you had more people going to Asia because that's the largest uh, population continent. So out of like 60-something kids, we had uh, basically like four or five students were, were over at North America. So 
Anyway, I said the local cuisines, but so the, the quality and quantity also depended on what, what table you went to. So as you can, can guess, North America had, had the, the most food. And so here are these four kids sitting, sitting down at the table at North America, and they're bringing steak as much as you want to eat steak. I mean, because, you know, in America, we can, we can eat. So they're bringing steaks, loaded baked potatoes, all the fixings that you can think of. And then they're coming out. As soon as the kids are, like, pretty much done, now they're bringing desserts, apple pies, desserts, I, I, you know, all kinds of ice creams and, and stuff. I mean, they are loaded up where the kids at some of the other tables, you know, maybe they get a little strip of fish and some rice or some beans. I think the Europeans ate pretty good as well. But basically, as the, the, nights, the dinner's kind of coming to an end, the, all the, the food is, there's just so much food they're just going to have to throw out. And they were wanting to take that over to kids from some of the other tables, and they weren't allowed to. But basically, and some of the other kids at the, at the other tables were looking at what all the, everybody's got eyes on the North Americans and seeing what they have. So it was a really good lesson uh, to, to those kids about what we have here in America and what we've been blessed with. So we go to uh, uh, 1 Timothy. Paul's going to write this letter uh, to Timothy. He refers to Timothy as my child in faith. Paul writes this letter as he travels to Macedonia, and he's going to leave uh, Timothy behind in the city of Ephesus. So he leaves him behind in the city of Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So we'll go to chapter 6, and we'll start off with verse 5. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So what does that sound like to y'all? This is referring to prosperity gospel. The name it and claim it. Godliness is a means of gain is all too often preached from the pulpit and too many people believe in that. Hey, if you want to be rich and drive that new Mercedes Benz AMG, you just got to believe Jesus and have enough faith and it'll be yours. Okay, basically you're indulging in the fleshly desires, earthly desires. This is one of the worst heresies. Stay away from such men who preach that. In verse six, as I talked about, is godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So what is a man's view of great gain? Becoming rich leads to contentment. Let's look at one of the richest people uh, that I can think of, Elon Musk. All right. I truly admire the man's genius. He's uh, created the Tesla car company. He leads the world in, in electronic vehicle technology. He's uh, even gotten into the commercial space race. There's reports that his net worth is over $207.7 billion. Now, he admits that he works uh, 120 hours per week. That's 17 hours per day, okay? So that's seven days a week, so there's not he's not taking a day off. Now, in the Navy, I worked pretty hard. And I remember sometimes on deployment, maybe I might work a 17-hour day, and I was exhausted. Heck, seven, uh, 70 to 80-hour days, and I was worn out. So this guy was con is continuously working. So, but does that necessarily working that hard or having that kind of wealth bring contentment? Do you ever see on a tombstone something that says, I wish I would have worked harder? You don't see that. So what's God's view of success? Well, we talked about that in verse 6. Godliness and contentment. A man who is godly and content doesn't have a want. For in verse 7, for we have 
brought nothing into the world, so he can take nothing out of, of it either. It also mentions that in Job chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15, will tell us the same thing. As he had come naked from the mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Paul is very clear on that point. You brought nothing in, you, you leave with nothing. In verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Paul's saying he's got everything he needs with food and covering. I've never been to, I travel around with FedEx. I've been a lot of places, but I haven't really spent a whole lot of time in third world countries. But I've talked to people who have. And many of the poorest uh, families around the world who live, as Paul describes, who have food and have coverings, who have covering, are content, especially considering children from, in, in these third world countries. They live lives without too many cares. Now, by contrast, let's take a look at some of the wealthiest populations. In the United States, where we often, uh, the case with children and teens struggling with suicide and drug dependencies. In 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death among uh, people from 10 to 24 years old. And it doesn't have to just be in the U.S. I was uh, reading a story about a, uh, a man in India who gave his 16-year-old son, so he had incredible wealth, gave his 16-year-old son a, an M3 BMW, and his son was upset and drove the car off into a river because he wanted a Porsche. So there's, there's a lot of people who don't appreciate, and like I said, in the third world countries, they don't have that issue. So in verse nine, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation. A snare and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. So how many people have fallen into that temptation as talked about in verse nine? So a personal story I had an uncle on my mother's side who grew up in central Georgia. He, uh, he was an overachiever. And he, he grew up in school. He did everything right. He was, you know, the star on the football team. All the guys wanted to be him. The girls wanted to be with him. 4.0 student. Goes off to Georgia Tech. The first one to, to go off to college in my mom's family is a salutatorian out of Georgia Tech. He gets an MBA from the University of Georgia, goes into the tech industry, and by the age of 40, he's already a millionaire. But that wasn't enough. He keeps, he wants more wealth. And so then he starts getting into day trading and then winds up losing his entire fortune. He couldn't stand to, 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 to lose that. And so he then turned to the bottle and he wound up basically drinking himself to death at the age of 51, leaving his entire family, wife and two children, in ruin and destruction, as talked about in verse 9. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice what Paul says here. He says, the love of money. He didn't say, as often quoted, that money is the root of all evil. Money is neither good nor bad. It's a neutral. When you have a lot of money, one of the potential downsides of having all that money is you have more opportunities for temptation that you would not otherwise face. Love of money becomes greed. And unlike the 1987 uh, movie Wall Street, where Michael Douglas yells out, greed is good. Okay, greed is not good. If you look at all the crime, all the wars and human death toll that have been caused by greed. In Mark 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 36, 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You've heard that money corrupts. Money is a mere barometer of the heart which shows corruption. I've seen many people that are corrupt that have money, and I've seen people with money who aren't corrupt. I've seen people who are poor who are corrupt, and I've seen people who are poor that are not corrupt. So money is not the problem, it's a heart problem. For the first time in our marriage, uh, Brandy and I got to move into a really nice neighborhood in Canafortis, I mean Anacortis. <laughs> anyway, we're the little guys in our neighborhood. What surprised me the most is just how miserable some of these wealthy people are. You've never heard so much complaining from, t- from time to time. Quotes that I get, I don't like how your satellite dish, it's against the code. You have too many cars parked on your side of the street. Your trees are too tall, they're obstructing my view. Not convinced of some of the unhappiness that wealthy people, take a look at any of the real housewives of, you name the city. How about the Kardashians or Britney Spears? Tremendous amounts of wealth, but they're so unhappy. I wouldn't trade my life for for theirs, would you? All right, let's go back and take a look at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Riches are not the true God, but they are to many people. Often the danger for the poor when they're in need and they need to guard against this is they think, well, if I only have some money, it'll fix all my problems. Well, don't ever trust in money. Trust in God. So who's, who's happy? Let's take a look at what Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 through 6 has to say. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in it, whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So where do you put your treasure? Do you put it in heaven? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 tells us, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break into and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where your neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we have a choice. Do we want to have put our riches here on earth or do we want to try to plan for putting them in the future? In verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So let's talk about uh, being generous. As a shepherd here at the bridge, I'm part of the, the finance meetings. And, and I, I can honestly say this is one of the most giving and generous churches. It, it just, it's really surprising uh, to the staff. Even as we've kind of gone into the COVID season, the last year and a half to two years, the church has actually given more in abundance. It's just truly amazing. It's kind of counterintuitive to what you would think, where people are hurting and, and you know, the economy is, is kind of down. 
and yet we give more. I don't know how, that's, that's got to be the Lord's hand on it. Let's take a look, look at another church, though, the church at Corinth. This church was also, uh, did a, was incredible at, uh, very generous in their giving. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the church of Corinth is just, like I said, it's a role model. Paul's uh, initially in chapter 8, Paul's initially accused early on in the chapter uh, in the ministry for, uh, for taking money. Even so, he asked the, the city of Corinth for offerings to the church to give to Jerusalem. Let me ask you this. You've uh, heard it's more blessed than to, to give than it is to receive. Do you know where that is uh, quoted in the gospel by Jesus? Can you find that? It's actually not quoted in the gospel, although it was a very common phrase. Where you do see it is in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the, the word of the Lord Jesus, because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there it is actually quoted of Jesus in Acts. So let's take a look at... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So many Christians in Corinth were excluded from all the trade guilds, businesses because of their faith. They faced persecution, losses of jobs, and because they refused to worship the idols. However, with their poverty and suffering, they had abundant joy and were abounding in wealth of generosity. Old Testament comparisons of this, you'll see in Exodus chapter 35, where the people generously gave for the tabernacle. Or you'll see this in 2 Chronicles, where again, they generously gave to build the temple. Do our circumstances ever give a convenient time for giving? In verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So what do we take away from the church at Corinth? They were known for their generosity. They begged to be included in the giving. And three, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. A great quote, he who knows he does not own himself will never again say he owns his money. In verse seven, but just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in the gracious work also. Paul measures their giving habits as a spiritual sign of spiritual maturity. He implies generosity is essential to spiritual development. Why? Because it's the nature of God to be generous. What is the ultimate example of this? Well, let's take a look in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Poverty is always worse when you were rich. Now think of Jesus sitting in the throne of heaven and now being placed on the cross as a criminal, going from rich to poor. As Chuck Missler says, it wasn't the nails on the cross that held, 
held him on the cross, but his love for you and I. On a side note, when Jesus was being mocked and dying on the cross, the Bible tells us there were 12 legions of angels waiting. In Matthew 26, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So how many angels are that? Well, if you referenced a Roman legion, that was around 6,000 men. So we're talking about 72,000 angels. Okay. Now, if you go, if you remember from Second Samuel twenty, uh, chapter twenty-four, when David took the census and he wasn't supposed to, he, the punishment was is the Lord unleashed one angel who wiped out seventy thousand Israelites in less than a day. So I will submit to you that seventy-two thousand angels could have easily wiped off all the mankind off the earth. All it would have take is him snapping his fingers or saying the word, and they were ready to come down. So, but he did, that wasn't his mission, and he loved us enough not to do that. Consider the humble origins of the creator of the universe placed himself in. Let's reference Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with his train of his robe filling the temple. So Christ left that throne to become a helpless babe born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was born of a woman so that you might be born of God. He humbled himself so that you and I would be lifted up. He became a servant, the one that is written about every knee shall bow, but yet he took a knee to wash his disciples' feet. He became a servant so that you and I could become joint heirs in glory and riches. Let's take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Meaning, when you're ready, it's not about the amount that you give, it's about the attitude. In verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your afflictions, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance may also be a supply for your need, that there may be equality. It is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. It's funny in this country, we used to strive for equality, and now that word has kind of become equity. The Bible does not push for equity. It does not push for a Christian form of communism, where we pull our money together and live in a commune. God makes us all different, and by his divine providence, we are given different abilities and different gifts. By his providence, we earn different incomes. The point is, is that we, the needs of uh, other believers, that we meet the needs of other believers so that they do not lack. The Bible makes this point in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he will not eat either. Notice that the Bible uses the word willing. In ancient, ancient Israel... There was uh, people who were mentally or physically unable to work were taken care of. But for those who chose not to work was addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not work, does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, or in some translations, an infidel. So when did it become acceptable in America to sit back and earn a living on 
collecting general welfare checks? When did it become acceptable in this country for the men to become deadbeat fathers, not taking care of their families? It's quite uncomfortable and, and oftentimes unpopular in many circles to talk about things like these, but it affects large communities of children growing up without fathers in the United States. We'll take a look at some of the statistics that we have. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, according to the U.S. Department of Health. That's five times the average. 90% of homelessness, or excuse me, homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 43% of all U.S. children live without fathers. And we wonder why. We look across our country and we see our school systems failing. We see homelessness. We see cities burning, rampant amounts of crime. Isn't it obvious? Satan's no fool. He knows that being very successful, he's been very successful in taking out the head of the household. All right, enough talk on that. Let's talk about give, going back to giving. So the Bible warns us uh, not to hoard earthly riches either. According to uh, James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, it talks about the misuse of riches. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 through 4, there's a warning on how not to give. Do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Uh, giving will be in secret in verse 4. So a little funny story. Um, I always kind of wondered, like, don't let the left hand know what the, the right hand is doing. And I remember back when uh, I was about 10 years old, so back in the, in the early 80s, and my parents, I think we had just moved into a house, and they were a little bit cash poor, and they told us, you know, coming into Christmas time, like, hey, things are going to be a little tight, you know, kind of lowering our expectations. So as my dad, you know, they had the, the system in our Baptist church where the offering plates come by, and my dad throws a check in there, and it was face up so I could see it. And as I get that check, I go, $100? Really loud, and they were so embarrassed, turned red and everything. And so anyway, we're not supposed to... to I guess that's kind of the meaning. It's supposed to be kept in secret, so I didn't do such a good job of that. Uh, that was a lot of money back then, especially for a 10-year-old. For a so a question you might ask yourself is, why do, you, why do you need to give when God has it all anyway? Well, first off, your giving will provoke others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes of the zeal being stirred up for most of them. So generosity is contagious. Two, your giving, uh, your giving will bless you. So Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So this is the one time I can think of in Scripture where it is okay to challenge the Lord when it comes to giving. So let's talk about the two types of giving. So we have the tithe, which is tenth, uh, one tenth of your of your, what you your first fruits. So that belongs to the Lord. It clearly says in the Bible that that tenth, if you don't give your tithe, that you're actually robbing from the Lord. Offerings is what we give above and beyond that ten percent. 
In verse 6 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, now, say, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So you can't, if you were a farmer, you can't go out and plant crops on an acre and expect to have five acres of crop turn out. So you put an acre in, it makes common sense. This principle, it's a basic principle that's expounded on throughout the Bible in Proverbs 11.24, Luke 6.38, Galatians 6.8, and Romans 8.32. The third point is your giving is an investment into the kingdom of God. So this is the one exception to the rule that you can't take with you. So there was an interesting parable I came across when I was preparing for this, and it's in Luke chapter 16. So it's, the, it's a strange parable about an unjust steward. So this unjust steward or manager uh, is working for a rich man. He's about to get fired. He's accused of squandering the rich man's possessions. The manager was called to give an account. In verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough, enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I should do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So the cliff notes on this is he knew he was about to get fired. And so he's kind of thinking about how do I better my conditions after I lose my job. So he goes out to all the people that owed the rich man money. And he said, hey, what can you give? And so in some cases, they could only, he'd only get 50 cents on the dollar in return. So he came back and brought that back to the rich man. And in verse 8, this is the interesting part. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. So it's like, okay, I don't quite get that. So the point of this parable wasn't that the rich man commended the manager for his ethical behavior, but because the manager was, was not short-sighted, but he set himself up favorably for the future. In other words, when you look at, when it talked about uh, going back to Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we can't take... We can't take what we have here with us. We can only, you know, we can't take it to, to heaven. So we want to prepare our treasure in heaven. So I would say, you know, nowadays when you travel, a lot of times you have credit cards at work. But before we had travel cards, if you wanted to travel to a foreign country, you had your dollar bills. You would want to go to a foreign exchange and change that out for the currency in that other country. You show up in that other country with a bunch of dollars, it's going to be worthless. In the same way your currency here on earth doesn't, doesn't translate, you can't take those dollars up there, okay? But you can invest that and change it into heavenly currency. So that's the point. So how do we give? In verse 7, each one must do just as he has uh, proposed in his heart, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We are incapable of outgiving God. You are trusting his sufficiency. God will not be your debtor. In verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God enriches us so that we can enrich others. In verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through the many thanksgivings uh, to God. Your giving will meet the needs. That's also uh, referenced in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, and Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience 
to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Meaning, God, uh, giving will unite God's people. So, in the conclusion, I think this kind of sums up what Paul and his contentment is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having an abundance and suffering need. And this is a great verse to put to memorize or put up on your fridge. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In verse 13, in Israel, there are two seas. You have the Sea of Galilee, been there, the fish are delicious. And then you have the Dead Sea, fun to float on, but nothing lives in it, okay? So what's the, what's the difference between the two? They both are fed by the Jordan River. However, the Sea of Galilee receives, and it also gives out. The Dead Sea only receives only. So which sea are you? Do you take God's blessing without giving back abundantly? Are you transferring your wealth from earthly currency to heavenly currency? I ask you to challenge the Lord in the coming days and trying to outgive him. I personally contest to whether early on in my marriage when I was a student pilot in the Navy and I didn't have much and I was able to make the tithe or now in either case when, when, I'm able, when I was able to, to, to give the tithe and then more, God blessed me. Now that blessing wasn't always me winning the lotto or, or having more money, but who can put a price tag on joy? Bottom line is it all belongs to God. So we must be, uh, must be a good steward. So we'll get uh, the praise team to, uh, to come forward. I'm going to pray here. Lord, our God, creatives of the heavens and the earth, your love is beyond comprehension. That you would leave your heavenly throne to become man, to die on the cross. Your gift of forgiveness and eternal salvation is more than enough, and yet you keep more in store for us. Lord, let us be content as Paul described, whether we have prosperity or in poverty. I pray we are aware of our brothers and sisters that are in need and that no one lacks. Lord, we're reminded that all things belong to you and to invest in the kingdom. Amen.